Hello and welcome to the weekly sermon by White Sulphur Baptist of Georgetown, Kentucky. We hope that you find this resource encouraging and helpful. You can also connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube, but we would love to see you in person on Sunday morning at 10.30 a.m. Thanks again for tuning in. Alright, well good morning, White Sulphur. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and grab those. I'm going to give you a head start on finding it. It's going to be uh, Gospel of Mark, and we're going to be starting in chapter 6. So go ahead and find Mark chapter 6. If you have your Bibles with you, whether that be a phone or a, a tablet or the old-fashioned uh, paper Bible like I have up here with me right now. Whatever it is, I just want you following along if you can. Uh, if you notice or if you grabbed a bulletin on the way in, you'll see on the back of it there are just some uh, simple notes Uh, My goal is just to help us find some ways to engage with the message, engage with the sermon, engage with the text uh, on a Sunday morning. So what I don't want is to accidentally create a dynamic where I'm kind of a performer and you're being entertained. Uh, That would be a very poor situation if that was the case. This This would not be really fun. What I want is for us to both be engaging with what's happening here. That when I'm preaching that I would be in a way worshiping. Right? That I would be worshiping God and presenting his word for you. And that you would be worshiping God by engaging with the word uh, that is being brought this morning. So all together we're worshiping. All together we're engaging. All together we are Christians interested in what the living God has to say to us on a Sunday morning. That would be my hope for us. That's what I'm hoping to accomplish. So if you didn't grab a bulletin, you can still do that if you want. Or if you have a notebook, just follow along if you can. There's also a very simple, easy prayer guide on the back of that. So I called it Praying the Passage, that as you go throughout your week, that you would have something to to reference to pray about, that we wouldn't just intellectually understand what the text is saying, but then we would interact with it through prayer, that we would ask God to make it alive to us, that he would uh, bring it to our hearts and give us a passion for what his word has to say. So, before I get started on the sermon this morning, I did want to say, and we've, we've already done this a little bit, thank you David, but I wanted to acknowledge the, the mothers in the room, that it's, it's Mother's Day, and that I'm excited uh, to have you here with us. And so there's a couple things I wanted to, to read. The Bible has a lot to say about mothers. Proverbs, 6, uh, Proverbs 6.20 says, My son, keep your father's commandment and forsake not your mother's teaching. Forsake not your mother's teaching. The, the writer of Proverbs, Solomon, is saying that, that uh, he's the wisest man in the world, right? And then he says, but make sure you listen to your mom. That mothers have something to say to their children, that there's a, a weight that they have when they speak. 2 Timothy 1.5 says, and this is Paul writing to Timothy, he says, I'm reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois, And your mother, Eunice, and now, I am sure, dwells in you as well. And Paul's saying that Timothy, this faithful young pastor who's getting started, that he's been mentoring, that this faith that Timothy has can really be traced back to a faithful mother and a faithful grandmother. And this faith that is passed down from generation to generation, that moms, you have the opportunity to impact generations of children that come after you and grandchildren and great-grandchildren. The mother of Moses placed him in a basket and sent him downriver to keep him safe, trusting the Lord would care for him. 
She was in a desperate situation, and yet she did what was best for her child. We see Mary, the mother of Jesus, another faithful mother, another faithful woman, uh, that when the angels came to her and and told her what would happen, that she responded by praising God. And and then we see that all the way till the end, till he's about to be crucified on the cross, Jesus is caring for his mother. He's placing this value on this woman that took the time to raise him and invest in him and love him. And he even goes so far as to make sure that John would take care of her when he's gone. When Jesus is gone, there's this great value the Bible places on motherhood. Uh, John Wesley, the famous revivalist preacher and hymn writer, he, he wrote at one point, I have learned more about Christianity from my mother than from all the theologians in England. I have learned more about Christianity from my mom than from all the theologians in England. And they had some good theologians. He was a good theologian. And yet he learned from his mom. He gives her credit for where he was at in that moment. That moms have this amazing opportunity to invest in their children. So we want to celebrate mothers today. We want to acknowledge also that not every journey through motherhood looks exactly the same way. Right? That we, we want to celebrate, but we also want to acknowledge that sometimes this can be a difficult day for some. Some moms have a lot of children And some only have one child. Some are still in the trenches of the toddler years. And some are kept up late praying for their college students. Some mothers held their children in this life for just a short time. And some women have stepped into another person's life and become the mother figure or spiritual mother in the faith that that person needed in that time. So motherhood, although it doesn't always look the same, that isn't always experienced the same way by every single mom that is out there, but they're all valuable. That they all have something to say and to teach us, and we're thankful for you. And so whether this day is a very light and easy day or a heavier day for you, I want you to know that that I love you, that I prayed this morning in my office for the moms of White Sulphur that would be here, whatever their story is or whatever their journey has been. That you are celebrated, that you are loved, and that you are valued here. So with that, let's pray, and then we'll get into our sermon this morning. Father, we're going to be looking this morning into your word. We're going to see just how you care for us. We're going to see how you have chosen to to keep an eye on us and and to uh, meet us in the difficulties of life, that we're going to see how when we're facing a strong storm of life or a strong headwind that blows us off course, that you are there to once again, over and over, help help us to correct that. Father, I thank you that you have preserved this word for us in every day and every moment that we would value it. And Father, I pray that the word works its way into our minds, and then from our minds, our understanding into our hearts, that your word inflames our affections and our passions for you and what you have called us to, and then from our hearts, that your word would work its way out through our hands, that we would know, that we would believe, and then that we would do. Father, that we would reach those around us. That we would take the, the sick, the needy, the spiritually uh, deprived and dying to you, the healer that can soothe and revive their souls. Father, I pray that my words this morning are for your people's good and for your glory. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. 
Amen. All right. When I was, oh man, probably about 10 or 11 years old, my friends and I, we were out and we were on a bike ride. And uh, we stopped on this bridge that was fenced on both sides so you couldn't get to the little tiny creek that was underneath it. And in, uh, in that moment, we were sitting on the railings and my friend had his wallet in his back pocket. And we sat there for a long time and all of a sudden we heard something fall from the bridge and hit the ground, the dry creek bed underneath. And we realized it was his wallet. His wallet actually had money in it, even though we were kids, and he needed to get that wallet back. And it was, it was way down there, it was a ways off, but we could see it. And so we, being 10, 11-year-old boys, we put a plan together that how we're going to get that wallet back. Somehow, that plan ended up with me being lowered to the bottom of the creek bed by my ankles, by my friends, right? They're like, we'll just lower you down. You grab the wallet and then we'll pull you back up. It'll be easy. It'll be fine. And at the time, I could not see how that plan could possibly fail, how things could go horribly wrong in that moment. And so, and so we started. Uh, I kind of climbed through the wire and each of them grabbed an ankle and they started to lower me down. But it was just out of reach. And I kept saying just a little bit lower, just a little bit lower. And then I can grab it. I can reach it. I can, I can get to it. And they got down, I mean, as low as they possibly could. At one point, one of my shoes slipped off because they were losing their grip on me. And then he was able to grab my ankle. Well, then they're hanging on to my jeans and my pants start sliding up, right? So I'm hanging upside down and I start feeling sick because I've been upside down for way too long. And so I start yelling at them, pull me back up. This is not working. Pull me back up. And they start yelling, we can't. We're not strong enough to pull you back up. We got you down there, but we can't pull you back up. And so I start screaming for help. <laughs> and there's, there's people on the bike path going by. And this guy, he pulls, over, he pulls his bike over and these couple people come over and they grab my ankles and they pull me up. I get my pants back up, right? I get my shoe. Uh, I end up hopping the fence and going down and getting my shoe that was lost and, and getting the wallet a much, in a much better way. <laughs> but the, the plan was a complete failure. I saw what I needed to do what I wanted to get, right? The, the object uh, that had my attention, I saw it, but I, I couldn't get to it. I couldn't retrieve it the way that I wanted to. And what we're going to see this morning is that Jesus is not like an 11-year-old boy upside down on a bridge. That Jesus, when he sees something in distress, when he sees his people in distress, when he sees the ones that he loves and cares for, he can see them and he can go to them and he can actually accomplish something. So my little story there was just to point out how even if we see the thing that we want and we have a desire to go to it in our humanity, oftentimes we are limited. But the Lord that we serve is not limited, that nothing can stop him from the things that he desires, that he will go to the ones that he loves, even if it means walking on water like we're going to see in our passage this morning. All right, so we're in Mark chapter 6, starting in verse 45. Immediately, he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, to Bethsaida. While he dismissed the crowd, and after he had taken leave of them, he went up on the mountain to pray. And when evening came, the boat was out on the sea, and he was alone on the land. And he saw that they were making headway painfully. 
For the wind was against them, and about the fourth watch of the night he came to them, walking on the sea. He went to pass by them, but when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and cried out, for they all saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke to them and said, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. And he got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased, and they were utterly astounded. For they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. Verse 53. When they had crossed over, they came to the land of Gennesaret and moored to the shore. And when they got out of the boat, the people immediately recognized him and ran about the whole region and began to bring the sick people on their beds to wherever they heard he was. And and wherever he came, in villages cities or countryside, they laid the sick in the marketplaces and implored him that they might touch even the fringe of his garment, and as many as touched it were made well. All right, so we just came off last week where Jesus feeds the 5,000. The disciples, the apostles, they're exhausted. They've been ministering. They've been serving. They've been on these kind of micro-missionary journeys. They came back, and then people want more of them. People want more of Jesus. When Jesus sees them, he says they're like sheep without a shepherd, and he has compassion on them. So in that moment, he decides to teach them. He gives them spiritual truth before he gives them food. We said that he feeds their souls before he feeds their bellies. And now they've left that scene. They're leaving. Jesus is going to take some time alone to go pray on the mountain. He sends the disciples, the apostles, on their way. And it says that he can see them from where he's sitting. That is where we pick up this morning. So the first point is that Jesus sees us, if you're following along. Jesus sees us. The all-knowing God always has his eyes Upon us, that we're not in danger of him losing sight of us. It's not like when I'm walking my kids through Rural King and I lose one of them. They're always at the popcorn stand, right? That's where I find them. It's not like that. He, does, he never has a moment where he doesn't know where we are. He has his eyes upon us. The danger is whether we have eyes to see God for who he really is. That is his glory And his power. This is, you know, the blindness or the hard heartedness of the disciples. They missed it with the feeding of the 5,000, which seems unthinkable. He he fed 5,000 people with just a couple fish and a couple pieces of bread, and yet it still didn't sink in in that moment who this Jesus was that they were following. They weren't quite there yet. They were blinded, or you could say that they were hardened in that moment, for they didn't understand. For some people, when they hear that, that God sees them at all times, it's the opposite of comforting. That when you hear that, that God is always watching you, that when God sees you at all times, that's the opposite of comforting. Because maybe you were raised by parents that they did always keep an eye on you. But it was to wait for that moment where you mess up so they could clock you over the head. It was, it was to wait until you made a mistake so that they could scream and yell at you. They were always watching, but they were watching because they wanted to catch you doing something wrong so that they could punish you. Or maybe hearing that God sees us at all times feels like some kind of invasion of privacy. Right? We're in a, in a culture that's having lots of conversations about what is an invasion of privacy. What does it mean to have 
privacy, that we don't like the idea of someone else invading our privacy, and yet we have a God that provides us realistically with no privacy, that he sees all, that he knows all. If that's how you feel about it, if you feel like God is butting into your business, or he is overstepping, or, in, or invading something that he shouldn't, then I would have to ask you, what is it in your life that you don't want God to see? What is it that you're worried about? Is it a sin that you're keeping in the dark, or the way that you speak to your family when you're not at church? The bottle that's hidden in your closet? The search history on your computer? If there are real and habitual sins that you feel like you need to hide from God, then then that's a problem. And also you're wasting your time because nothing is hidden from the Lord. Nothing is hidden from the Lord. We see that all throughout the Psalms and the Proverbs. What is done in the dark will be brought to the light, but that he already sees it when it's in the dark. I would say that if that's you and you're uncomfortable this morning while I'm talking about this, and you've already got that thing in your head, you know what it is that you wouldn't want God to see, that you feel like you're keeping a secret but isn't actually a secret. You've got that in your mind right now that it's, it's the time to bring that into the light willingly. Right? To confess that to the Lord. He already knows about it. But to take it to him and to give it to him and to not pick it up again. To bring that thing out of the dark and into his light because he's able and willing to forgive those things. God's gaze, while it does look upon and judge sin in righteousness is a loving gaze. That, yeah, that, that judgment that he brings against sin is actually a place of love. If you're a Christian, he looks upon you as a son or a daughter with care and concern, like a diligent father that watches over his kids when he takes them to the park. When I, when I do this, when Bethany and I take the kids to the park, I'm a warrior. There's, there's other kids out there. I'm watching them like a hawk because I don't like bullies, right? And Piper is like my angel, right? And I don't want other little girls being mean to her or anything like that. Uh, Luke is the most accident-prone kid I have ever met in my entire life. So he climbs up the tallest thing that he possibly can and somehow falls off of it every single time that we take him to the park. And so out of care and concern and love, I'm watching him. Because I don't want them to get hurt. Because I want them to have a great experience. I want them to flourish and to thrive and survive going to the park. Our Father, out of concern, is keeping an eye on us. I don't want you to think Santa Claus, right? So this is the line. Don't think Santa Claus when you think about God watching you. When it says, he sees when you're sleeping. He knows when you're awake. He knows when you've been bad or good. So be good for goodness sake. That's not the idea of God. That is not the way that he watches us. No, your heavenly father does not see you so that he can decide if you deserve good things or bad things. We all, apart from Christ, deserve the bad thing. But the grace is that you don't get the bad thing. Through faith, you get the good thing. Grace is getting something that you don't deserve. That's the God that we serve. God sees you. I need you to hear this part. God sees you. All of you. Every moment, every thought, every action. He knows the absolute worst thing you have ever thought or done. And he loves you anyway. He loves you when you don't deserve it. And that's grace. Receiving what we don't 
deserve. You are fully known by God. He sees all of you and loves you. Not because you earned it, but because he chooses to be gracious to us. So Jesus sees us, but he doesn't just see us. Jesus meets us. Jesus meets us. Is watching us out of love all that he does. No, he is keeping an eye on his disciples, but then in their distress, he goes to them. He meets them on the sea. So just like when I was dangling underneath that bridge, I could see what I wanted to get to, but I couldn't get to it. Jesus isn't restricted like that. He can do as he pleases, and what he pleases to do is pursue his disciples, his people, the ones that he loves. He meets them in their distress. He goes to them. And he's still doing that today. He's still going to the ones that need him. He's still going to the ones that are stuck in the storms, that have been blown off course. He meets them in those moments, but the thing is that he doesn't always do that at the time or at the place that we would like him to. Right? Because sometimes we still have to ride through that storm for a moment. The passage says that that they had a strong headwind that they were rowing against, and that, that they can, we, we can really safely assume that this was going on for some time because he watched them from the mountain. It says that he walked down to them. That would take a while. That this wasn't just the moment that they encountered something difficult. Jesus rushes to their side, like I would if Piper falls and scrapes her knee. He doesn't do that necessarily. He lets us sit in that moment, and there's something happening in those moments where Jesus lets us row Against the strong winds. Some of you know what it's like to go through a season of life with a strong wind in your face. Maybe that wind was so strong that it completely blew you off course. That in that moment you, you didn't know where you were, who you were, or where Jesus was. And in, in those times you come to a place of hopelessness. A, a place of humility because you recognize your own weakness, and you realize your need for Christ through those times. It's really in those moments where we're brought low, where we're humbled, that Jesus is magnified, glorified, and and made much of. 2 Corinthians 1, 3 through 11. 2 Corinthians 1, 3 through 11, Paul was writing to the church, and he's trying to encourage them, but listen to how he encourages the church that is going to be facing trials. He says this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in our affliction. Now, he doesn't start off by saying, who rips us out of bad situations immediately, who pulls us out of the headwind immediately, but who comforts us in our affliction, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as we share abundantly, abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. If we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. If we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we suffer. Our hope for you is unshaken, 
For we know that as you share in our sufferings, you will also share in our comfort. For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. Now listen to this. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. We despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He delivered us from such a deadly peril, and he will deliver us. On him we have set our hope that, we will, that he will deliver us again. You also must help us by prayer, so that many will give things on our behalf for the blessing granted us through the prayers of many. Do you see how Paul is comforting the church in distress? He's not telling them first off that things are just going to get better tomorrow because they might not get better tomorrow. He's saying that we despaired of life itself because the affliction was so crushing in that moment. Think about the disciples being spun around on a lake by a wind in the dark, in a storm. Despairing of life, not knowing where Jesus is. Why would he abandon us in this moment? It's been hours. Where is he? Couldn't he have saved us by now? And then Jesus comes to them. And the same eyes, the same eyes that saw the disciples on the sea that night, those are the same eyes that watch over you. And when you, like Paul, despair of life itself, believing that there's no possible way that you could continue under your own strength, then you have reached the truth of the matter. Are you hearing what I'm saying? That when you get to that point, then you've reached reality. That, that those moments actually are more than you can handle apart from Christ. That he's brought you to that place. And then is when Jesus will meet you and strengthen you to accomplish what he has called you to. It is in the moments of self-forgetfulness and humility, the moments when trials have stripped us of our pride and self-sufficiency. In these moments, faith has a real opportunity to grow. It's in those moments that the soil of our heart has been tilled up, that the hard work is being done for the seed to really take root. We see this over and over and over in Scripture. We talked about on Wednesday night in our men's group that we can see this on a larger scale in the church, that when the church faces persecution throughout human history, those are the times that it flourishes because it leans on Christ, because it goes back to Christ, because it knows it needs Christ. It returns to prayer. It returns to fasting. It returns to an earnest kind of faith. God uses the storms and the trials of this life, just like a gardener uses pruning shears, to cut back the things that are keeping our souls from truly thriving. So what we see is that, that Jesus sees us in our trials, right? He sees us. That he's aware of everything that we're going through, but it doesn't stop there. He meets us in our trials. He goes to us that we are not left alone in our trials. He sees us. He meets us. And that's good news. But it gets even better that he also heals us. Jesus heals us. 
Mark 6, starting in 53 again. When they had crossed over, they came to the land of Gennesaret and moored to the shore. And when they got out of the boat, the people immediately recognized him and ran about the whole region and began to bring the sick people on their beds to wherever they heard he was. And wherever he came, in villages and cities or countryside, they laid the sick in the marketplaces and implored him that they might touch even the fringe of his garment. And as many as touched it were made well. So he does care for the whole person. Sometimes, if we're not careful, we can think that we are merely a spiritual being just kind of wrapped in this shell that is to be discarded at some point. But that's not the way the Bible talks about a human. That there's value in the spirit and there's value in the body. That Jesus died a bodily death and rose, a bodily, physical resurrection. That someday he might come back and that we would be resurrected with new bodies, not just our spirits. That there's a value to the whole person. You are not merely spirit. Your body is of value. In fact, C.S. Lewis once wrote, in trying to capture this idea that, that humans, he called them amphibious. That we really belong to both worlds. That we're stepping in and out of both worlds all the time. The spiritual and the physical. That we were made for both, in a way. The evangelistic healings of Jesus, they foreshadow the greater truth that he came to be a physician to the soul. So while he cares for the body, if he heals the body but the soul goes to hell, that means nothing. In the grand scheme of eternity, something horrible has happened, something eternal and valuable. The image of God has been lost to hell for eternity. Isaiah 53, 5 says, But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. With his wounds, we are healed. 1 Peter 2.24 says, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. Now, if you look at the context of both of those passages, they're not actually talking about the body. Right? There's a metaphor that's happening here, that, that your spiritual sickness, your spiritual condition, your spiritual death is what needs to be healed, and that's what Jesus died for. That's what Jesus accomplished on the cross, that, that you might be healed in that way. That's what's being described. So it is, it is by the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus that we are reconciled to God the Father, that we are set free from the bondage of sin, and that we have peace with each other and with ourselves. And the people in the town that Jesus landed on after he got in that boat recognized that this man could heal. And there was a sense of urgency that they had when it came to getting people there. You see, Jesus, he is, he is a physician, good at healing, an expert at healing, the best at healing every kind of ailment that the human soul could possibly have. He binds up the heart that has been broken by loss and slander and addiction. He can take a heart of stone that is cold and dead and breathe life into it. He knows just the medicine needed for whatever it is that ails your souls. Now that's the kind of savior that Jesus is. He sees us 
He meets us and he heals us. Nathan, if you go ahead and join me at this time. So I have a few questions for us then. Look at the reaction of the people at the end of our passage. What are we doing to get other people that are sick, that are dead in sin, that have broken hearts and and hearts of stone to the one doctor that can heal and save them? What are we doing? Do we have the urgency that those people had? Do we recognize the problem and see the solution that as Christians we have the solution? We know the doctor that can heal that. But we have to get the people to him. Who are the people around you that need the heavenly physician? So what I'm going to ask you to do is in this moment that we would just close our eyes. All right, Just a little exercise right here. Close our eyes. Now, I don't believe that there's a single person in the room that doesn't have someone around them who needs Jesus. And so take a moment, just a moment, and think of that one person that the Holy Spirit has been laying on your heart. That one person in your life that you know has an ailment of the soul. Maybe they are, maybe they are a Christian but there is some damage that has been done. They need to be led back to Christ. Maybe they've never been a Christian. They need a heart transplant. Maybe it's a family member, a coworker, an employee at a store that you frequent. Go ahead and open your eyes. And this is, this, I'm just going to ask this, that you would write that person's name down. Maybe put it in your phone real quick. Write it down on the bulletin. Uh, write it down in a notebook or something. But somehow remember that name, whatever you have to do. And then here's the take home, okay? It's to start praying for that person this week. Keep that person on your mind. Keep that person on your heart. Ask that God would provide an opportunity for a gospel conversation. J.C. Ryle, in 1859, he wrote this regarding our passage this morning. He said, let us strive to bring all around us who are in need of spiritual medicine to Jesus, the great physician, that they may be healed. Souls are dying every day. Time is short. Opportunities are rapidly passing away. The night cometh when no man can work. Let us spare no pains in laboring to bring men and women to the knowledge of Jesus Christ, that they may be saved. Now, I'd like to give you an opportunity to respond this morning. We've seen that that Jesus sees us, that he meets us in trials, and that he heals the wounds that maybe we've inflicted on ourselves, that maybe have been inflicted by the world, or maybe have been there since birth because we've never placed our faith in him. That this morning you have an opportunity to have an appointment with the heavenly doctor the heavenly physician, the one that can heal every ailment that you possibly could think of, that you possibly have experienced. And so if that's you, the front is open. I'll be more than happy to pray with you. But this is a time that you have to respond over the next few minutes. Father, I know that today can be painful for people. I know that holidays of almost any kind can oftentimes be mixes of 
joy and sorrow, pain and pleasure. Father, I pray that we remember that when we despair of life itself, that you are with us, comforting us in our afflictions. Father, I pray that you show us the purpose in the pain. We know that you are preparing and producing something in our hearts that will reap eternal benefits, that you do not waste the trials that we go through turn them and you can use them for good in any circumstance. Father, I pray that we would lean on you, that we would take our broken hearts and our seared souls to you to be mended, to be bound up, and to be full of life once again. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Go in peace this morning.